And good morning, time now for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. Now at Christmas I was at one of those social barbecues and you've probably had this experience. We're sitting around the table and the conversation is going like, oh the world's population is growing out of control, climate change, and the politicians, the politicians are doing nothing. And after a while, I'm, you know, we're having a, a violent agreement about this, and after a while I said, you know what, um, that's the question. We're all agreeing that we have a problem. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Plenty of time to complain, lots of energy to complain, but no energy to actually do anything about it. Well, my guest today is a person who has plenty of energy to do the right thing and to get up, dare I say, and it is, in fact, Simon Sheikh, who is behind, or was behind, the Get Up social movement in politics and now has a third career, or possibly even a fourth career, you might say, in superannuation. Good morning, Simon. Morning. Nice to be with you. Now, Simon, you've clearly been highly energetic, well, in many spheres. Was there a particular moment, that a time when you thought to yourself, I really must get up and do something? I think uh, there, we all have many moments in our lives that we can attribute to that sort of thing. Uh, for me personally, I grew up uh, in the inner parts of Sydney um, in a fairly poor community, and so I got to see quite a few challenges um, for the people around me. Uh, but uh, it was really in high school that I started to learn that actually you could do something about it. I remember the first uh, march I went to, the first rally I went to, which I guess is, uh, is now back in the news again, was a rally against the rise of Pauline Hanson. Um, this was uh, when I was in uh, uh, in year seven, uh, and so I think for many of us, we 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 had opportunities to go and take action like that that then lead to the next thing, which leads to the next thing. And I was very lucky in my case to have teachers who helped propel that along in the public education system. So you, you've got a strong social conscience. Where did that come from? I think that's something that often comes from family. Not always, but I think often comes from family. My parents, uh, particularly my father, was someone who was uh, following politics very closely. Uh, he was someone who was engaged in the political conversations, helped me understand the value of reading the newspaper paper, not that people do that in print form anymore I guess, but certainly then we would read the newspaper in print form and learn about the world around us. Now I must say uh, I wasn't uh, the most studious of uh, young people early on, but uh, that all came in time um, and uh, luckily at, uh, at the right time for me. And that was because I guess when you see injustices uh, and you see them around you, you then are tuned into seeing them around the world as well. I think it's that local to global connection that we can all form um, when we start to understand empathy, which is at the core of progressive politics, where uh, why are we people who uh, see ourselves as progressively minded? Because we care, because we care about the people around us, and that gives us the framework and the basis to care about the broader world around us as well. So I can imagine the lounge room, the dining table was a lively place in the chic household. Do you have any brothers or sisters? No, no, it was just me. So uh, it wasn't overly lively. Um, my father's a very uh, uh, reserved man. So we were, I wouldn't describe our conversations as uh, as, well, as as like that, but um, they were certainly enjoyable conversations. And, and your, uh, your friends at school, was it similar? We're talking to, were, did you find the same kind of attitudes with them? Uh, look, um, for a small group of people, 
people, yes. So I got involved when I was about 16 years old in a group called the United Nations Youth Association. Now, this started out as, uh, and this is embarrassing to uh, reveal, but that starts out as those model United Nations activities, um, but uh, transitions into many other leadership activities. Uh, and that led to me getting involved in the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, which is a movement of over 120,000 young people taking real and meaningful action in Australia uh, to pressure politicians and companies to do the right thing uh, when it comes to climate change. Now, it was during the setup phase of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition that I met my wife, uh, met many of my friends, uh, people I'm still friends with to this day 10 years on, and so that's what then, I guess, does allow for those conversations to happen amongst friends so, when you start to tap into those social networks of people who care. Yes, yes. Now, we, we should say that your wife is Anna Rose, who itself is a prominent activist, and I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, what she did and, uh, and is doing, in fact, later perhaps. But uh, it's, is it my perception correct, though, that the, the younger generation is less active in, in general, that, is, that, that people are less inclined to get involved? Or do you think that's always been the case and the current generation is no really, not really different? Well, I guess you could make the argument um, in the opposite direction as well, though. Uh, I don't see a lot of value in trying to analyse that. Uh, what I uh, constantly am amazed by, though, is those people from older generations who understand the responsibility. Uh, when you have uh, important direct actions occurring, for example, as we saw uh, in the campaign at Moores Creek uh, targeting the Whitehaven coal expansion project uh, up there, what we saw is older generations taking the lead, including people who are aged in their 90s and 80s, um, realising that to take direct action, which is something that's important to do in some campaigns at the right times, uh, is something that often falls onto young people to have to do, even though we've got our lives ahead of us. When we see older generations involving themselves in those kind of activities when they're post their working career, well, I just think that's just such a wonderful thing because it, uh, uh, it gives us a sense of what our future will look like as well. So it is your, your future, of course. Now, do you think that people are overwhelmed a bit that, that the problems seem so big or such a scale that they're just unmanageable? So... I can't fix global warming, but I can fix my backyard. I do meet people who uh, have a sense of being overwhelmed. However, I don't think it takes long to show them their agency um, and, uh, and to have them feel a sense of that agency. Um, I think it's really important that we break down global problems into ones of which we can tackle piece by piece. So, for example, when we think about the broad issue of climate change and, and really runaway global warming, um, uh, uh, reaching scary tipping points, certainly above the 1.5 degree now uh, hurtling towards two degrees, it's easy if we stop the conversation there to feel hopeless, uh, a sense of hopelessness. Um, however, when we then say, okay, well, one of the things we've got to do is transition towards renewable energy. Um, the, one of the most important things we can do, therefore, is transition our own country to renewable energy. Therefore, here in the ACT, where we are today, let's lobby our governments to have a 40% carbon pollution target, a 100% renewables target. That happened some years ago. A group of uh, people from all across Canberra ran that campaign. Uh, it was taken up by government and has now led to us being the most progressive uh, territory, and, uh, territory and or state in the country when it comes to renewable energy. So suddenly that global challenge becomes something that we can meaningfully work on here in Canberra and sets an example for people around the world to also follow. Uh, and I like that because that fits in with my opening anecdote that uh, you know the conversation at the Christmas party was you know we're powerless 
But we're not powerless, are we? No, in fact, our power here in Canberra is some of the cleanest power that we get out of the sockets <laughs> from around the country, right? So, uh, no, far, far from powerless. And look, that's what my life has shown me. I've been involved in campaigns that set up the first uh, uh, clean energy laws at a national level, and yes, many of them have been disbanded, but not all of them have. Um, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA still exist. Yes, they've been attacked many, many times, but they've survived because they were appropriately designed and, and uh, put in legislation and made very difficult um, for our governments to get rid of. So there is a way, if we're smart about it, for us to work together. Uh, the sum total is, of course, greater than the parts. And so that's what we really have to talk about here is how are we going to, in 2017 and 2018, continue the trends that we've seen in the past. Yes, some of those trends involve some climate action being walked back, but they also involve, um, uh, 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 really excitingly for me, uh, the renewable energy trend continuing and really hurtling towards uh, 2020 when we've got uh, our 23% target here in Australia. So now you got involved with GetUp, right? Tell me a bit about that. Well, uh, I had just uh, been working in the New South Wales Treasury uh, during the day and during the evenings working at the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and found an opportunity to go across to get up at, a t at the time at which they had uh, just finished the 2007 federal election, which saw, of course, John Howard uh, booted from office. 2008, the first year of the Rudd government, was, um, was my uh, first time working aggressively in the national political scene. And uh, the first campaign I worked on was the climate torch relay uh, and the broader campaign towards getting Kevin Rudd to announce strong targets on climate action. And, of course, if you remember at the time... Uh, many of us said that he forgot the zero. A 5% emissions reduction target was a woeful target, and it really proved that electoral politics is not enough. It's not enough just to get involved in changing uh, our politicians. Um, it actually means a lot more to get involved in between elections. And if you think about it, the inverse of that gives us some hope when it comes to Donald Trump being elected. Donald Trump can't just, of his, of his own will, uh, push through his agenda. Citizens still have a role in pushing back, uh, and that's what we've seen in the past. That's what we'll see again. Yes, I, w I wanted to ask you your reaction to the US election because I was reading it over my breakfast this morning and feeling thoroughly depressed. What, 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 what's your feeling about that? Oh, look, I think that it's impossible not to feel a deep sense uh, of sadness because, as I mentioned earlier, to have the values we have is to care about others. And uh, even just putting aside the issue of climate change, I mean, there are minority communities who are feeling threatened right now. Whether or not uh, it, they turn into being people who are marginalised even further by the Trump administration uh, well, is almost beside the point because they are already feeling threatened. They're already feeling threatened. Just the inauguration of Donald Trump alone is enough to show uh, the deep divisions in the US, um, in the US geopolitical scene. And so, of course, uh, like you, I, I don't feel a great sense of um, pleasure in seeing Donald Trump elected, uh, far from it. However, Obama wrote a really good uh, little piece on clean energy, just as an example, showing how uh, the work that's already been done has built up such momentum that despite uh, Donald Trump's election, we still should see a massive transition towards clean energy continue. Um, it's not just in the US, but we look to China for an increasing global position of leadership. Um, when we think about where China's going, I mean, they are the fastest adopters of clean energy do, in do, the world. Do you think in a perverse kind of a way that his presidency 
see will galvanise people? Uh, well, of course it will galvanise people. It already has. There were more people who turned out to the Women's March than there were to Donald Trump's inauguration. Now, we say that flippantly because we've gotten so used to thinking about Donald Trump as divided and hopeless. But actually, that's really extraordinary. Because remember, people in the US have got this deep sense of nationalism. Even people who have progressive values have a great sense of pride in the nation state, probably unlike anywhere else in the world. I mean, I'm sure there are you know, other places in the world that compete with that. But, uh, but that's very different to what we see in Australia. Um, we in Australia understand our role in the broader Pacific community. We understand our role in the wider world. We've got friends all over the world. We travel all over the world. So we come from a different place here. So I think it's, um, it's important to have a sense of hope when we think about these things. And I think when it comes to China, uh, the other interesting thing that we're going to see is the rapid rise of China's influence around the world brought forward, propelled forward uh, by the US. If you can imagine uh, the bilateral relationships that are going to develop in the coming months and years between different European countries, we've already seen deep bilateral relations um, develop in African countries between China. Uh, east and west um, really meeting to move things forward. Now that should in some sense give us hope, obviously in other senses makes us concerned as well. I'll just get you to put the headphones on because I've got a bit of surprise audio for you uh, Simon and uh, I want to bring the story of politics a little closer to home and I think you'll recognise pretty quickly what this one is. And that tells you something that tells you something about the extent of the concern that Australians have about climate change and the interest in and hunger for information and knowledge about the way we can deal with it and the way we can move as we must move if we are to effectively combat climate change to a situation where all or almost all of our energy comes from zero or very near zero emission sources. Now, our response to climate change must be guided by science. The science tells us that we have already exceeded the safe upper limit for atmospheric carbon dioxide. We are, as humans, conducting a massive science experiment with this planet. It's the only planet we've got. We are dealing, in scientific terms, with enormous uncertainty. And, of course, you recognise that voice, don't you, Simon? Of course. Yes, of course. And, look, I think Malcolm Turnbull still believes uh, in the need to take action on climate change. Unfortunately, he's done a deal with the devil to get the prime ministership, and that is a real challenge for Malcolm Turnbull. Now, how does he deal with those members on the right of his party who don't want to see action on climate change? Well, one of the things we need to see develop, and thankfully behind the scenes are seeing develop inside the Liberal Party, is a strong movement on the moderate faction, on the moderate side of the equation. Uh, people in New South Wales, for example, who lead the moderate faction are increasingly becoming concerned about the issue of climate change. So this story is not written yet. Um, um, you, you kind of preempted a thought or a question I had for you, which uh, is interesting because it's long occurred to me that the Green movement is associated with progressive values, you know, with managed equality, uh, social justice and so on. But uh, the whole package of environmentalism is now wrapped up with that. And so I suspect, and tell me if you agree, that uh, that immediately puts a negative flavour on it for a part of the electorate. Well, conservative conservatism is about protecting what we have now. 
taking action on climate change is about protecting what we have now. Protecting our environment is about, of course, protecting what exists now. So there's, there shouldn't be a, a black and white dichotomy here when it comes to which political parties and which political movements consider themselves to be progressive, if we want to use that word, on an issue like climate change. Um, what is important now is that we don't over-politicise this. So if we track back uh, the polling, uh, when we look back at the polling on who, where is it, where, what was the point in time at which we started to lose the debate on climate action in Australia, obviously it's come back in recent months, thankfully, but uh, previously there we had uh, a pretty bad period. And it was when Tony Abbott became uh, the opposition leader uh, and all of a sudden you had the Liberal and National Party with one position and the other parties with, the re with a more modern position. Now that divide lasted all through the Abbott years. Turnbull's become Prime Minister hasn't changed very much. However, what we have seen is a far greater support for the need to take action on climate change now amongst the Australian population. And there are so many signs in my political career that I've seen that show me that people are smarter than what we think they are. Uh, they know that Malcolm Turnbull and a growing number of Liberals want to take action on climate change. They understand that. They've, they've heard the clip that you've just played and many, many others. Uh, they don't see the action, but they know uh, that it doesn't have to be uh, a non-partisan uh, or a rather a partisan issue for much longer. I just quickly want to quote a couple of things. Now, I get uh, science media releases and... Uh, this is the reaction to the news that the World Meteorological Organization has confirmed that 2016 was the hottest year on record and we've broken records three years in a row and in fact it was 1.1 degrees C higher than the pre-industrial period. That's pretty serious. And uh, Professor Ian Lowe says the Australian government targets are nowhere near meeting our share we need to urgently phase out coal-fired electricity and we could reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 30% using cost-effective existing technology paying for itself in less than four years. That's not a free lunch. It's a lunch we would be paid to eat. What a great quote. Who was that? That's uh, Professor Ian Lowe from... Oh, that was Ian Lowe's quote. Yes, Excellent. Fantastic. And, and I think he puts it uh, quite nicely. And my perception of that is the economics... Are changing. They certainly are, and look, Ian Lowe's not the only professor to know about that. I think, in fact, everyday Australians now see that. The economics are changing rapidly, especially last year. I mean, we're now seeing more installed capacity, uh, when, when we look to new capacity, from renewables than we're seeing from coal. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, investment's coming back and it's driving down the cost. If you were to go and build a power plant right now, what would you build? The cheapest power plant you can build right now is not coal, it's not gas, it's wind. And very soon, it'll be wind and solar. Now, this is a, an, irony, an irony, isn't it? A bittersweet irony, dare I say, because uh, the, a lot of the opponents to global warming, the people who you, we call climate denialists, say, oh, it's not happening. Uh, now, Anna Rose was involved with this documentary on ABC called Madlands. Or the How, yeah, yep, it, it, that was her book, A Journey to Change yeah. the Mind of a Climate Skeptic. Uh, yes. So that was just, the book just, based on the movie. Yes. Uh, now, I've just been reading the book, and it is highly readable. That's called Madlands. And uh, I've enjoyed reading it, but it makes me angry as well 
Can you maybe go back a step for us sure. and describe the TV documentary? Yeah, sure. You might remember there was a Q&A special which involved a one-hour documentary followed by an episode of Q&A. Uh, Anna Rose, my partner, uh, took Nick Minchin around the world uh, and the challenge was for them to convince each other of their positions on climate change and uh, particularly the science. Uh, but what was most interesting about uh, their journey, I thought, was when they started to talk about the consequences of the science because that's really, I think, the biggest lesson from what Anna did uh, in taking the Commission around, what she was able to learn uh, by getting into the minds of people who don't want to see action on climate change, is that it's not actually the science they're scared of. It's the consequences of that science. It's how that challenges their frame of reference. Uh, these are people who believe in the free market. Uh, they've believed in it for decades. They've worked in it. They've had made uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, they've uh, raised in donations, if not millions of dollars, uh, off of their philosophies from big business. And at the end of the day, to accept climate change and to understand climate change is to also understand the need uh, to rein in the free market. It's to understand the need to deal with market failures. Uh, it's to understand that government needs to intervene, needs to take action, uh, needs to pick winners. All of the things that the economics textbooks tell us are silly, in fact, become smart. And that's a big change for someone. I mean, to take a step back, as Anna did, and actually have empathy for Nick Minchin, uh, as she was able to do, at least to some extent, um, is to un comes from understanding his position, his position, his worldview has been challenged, and that is the case for many of our politicians and many of our business leaders who for decades have felt like it'll all be okay. We can, we can have runaway growth rather than runaway pollution. So if it comes down to a struggle between ideology and physics, physics will win, will it not? Uh, well, I mean, uh, one thing we know is that the world is uh, already changing. Uh, one thing we know is that uh, global warming and carbon pollution are already killing huge numbers of people prematurely. I mean, I know it sounds drastic to say, but that is the simple reality um, in uh, many parts of the world. Uh, we know that smog and pollution are now one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issues, in cities like Beijing and Shanghai. So... To some extent, you can argue the evidence is already there that physics uh, is responding, that reality is here biting us. Um, our challenge when it comes to taking action on climate change is not binary. It's not about saying if we do X, Y, Z, we will avert the climate crisis. We are obviously already in crisis and that crisis will worsen before it gets better. Our challenge is to save as many lives and as many species as we can in the future. Now, to do that, of course, we want to take the strongest action we can. So this is a spectrum, uh, not a black and white position. So if their only motivation was profit and economics, then is it true from what you were saying about the changing cost structure of energy that that argument is taken away from them? Well, they're, they're, I don't think it's reasonable to say that their motivation is just profit. These are people who believe they're trying to help the world. These are people who make the argument that coal brings people out of poverty. Um, they don't say that just as a soundbite. They say that because they really do want to do something about poverty. These are people who have kindness in their heart, but unfortunately um, they're misguided when it comes to their ideology. Now, I know that's a hard position to accept because we understand the science, we understand the consequences of it, so it seems absurd that someone else who stands in the way of climate action would do so because they feel they're doing the right thing. But that is the case. Yes, uh, the market is structured in such a way as to drive profit um, in the short term above long-term outcomes, um, but uh, I think the story is deeper than that. 
So do you think it's a mistake then to demonise other people, the people who oppose you? Is that what you're saying? Our, so if, our challenge is not to engage with those people who are all the way out there on the hard right, if we want to put it that way, when it comes to climate inaction. Uh, our challenge is to deal with those people who are undecided, uh, who, are, who are leaning in the direction that we don't want them to, and to bring them in. Because we, uh, if we're going to see significant action on climate change, just have to isolate those people out there who we're never going to reach. Um, in a democracy, we can do a lot. Uh, with 75-80% support. And by the way, that is the support numbers for renewable energy. Uh, Favourability ratings are huge when compared with coal. At Future Super, we've done quite a bit of polling uh, when it comes to people's attitudes to different energy sources. And even during the South Australian blackout crisis where people mistakenly blamed uh, renewable energy, uh, mistakenly is one word, um, what we saw is people's uh, support for renewable energy rise, not decrease. When the coal industry launched a campaign, a massive advertising campaign uh, in the middle of last year to try and get support for coal to go up, it actually went down during the course of that expenditure. So the trends are pretty clear. Uh, some politicians are seeing that. One of the interesting things we're seeing in Canberra politics, um, in federal politics, uh, I should say, is uh, that the debate now has become about renewable energy, which is not necessarily uh, at the greatest place to be. Because what we're seeing is the Labor Party taking a position that's reasonable on renewable energy. Uh, there's some detail there that's missing that we need to see and hopefully we'll see it. The Greens obviously heavily talking about renewable energy as well. And to some extent this has pushed the coalition into saying, well, if the debate on climate change is about renewable energy, we need to be on the other side of that debate. And so now we're seeing the Liberal Party attack uh, renewables, attack state-based targets, and that's a real shame because what we really need is bipartisanship on renewable energy. Now, the good news is we have some bipartisanship. Uh, the renewable energy target out to 2020 is very clearly understood. It's uh, rock solid, and it's driving billions of dollars uh, worth of investments. Uh, uh, those investments started to occur this year with $4.65-odd billion of investments in renewable energy uh, in Australia, uh, last year, I should say. This year will be bigger. 2018 will be the tipping point where we get the majority of, uh, of the investment having been made for that 2020 target. So it's now a race to the finish line when it comes to 2020. What we don't want to see is investment drop off a cliff, and in order to avoid that, we need a strong uh, renewable energy target out to 2030. That is possible. Uh, it's possible. It's difficult in the current political climate to see, but you'd think that some kind of deal could be struck in our Senate uh, when it comes to that target. Well, that's interesting, your take on where the debate is and where the debate should be, because I was wondering, you know, we should stop debating global warming. You know, it's a fact, and most people accept it, I think, with a few outliers. And I was thinking maybe we should be debating or talking more about solutions but uh, that sounds like a danger from what you're saying. Uh, well, I think where uh, there is reasonable grounds to have debate, and this is difficult to do so um, in the mass media, uh, is around how we get our energy grid ready for the transition. Because there definitely becomes a point at which the level of renewable energy you have in the grid uh, needs to be met by a smarter grid. Um, one of the things we talk very little about is the fact that we've got abandoned mines all over this country, some of which uh, should be used for pump hydro storage. Um, we've got battery technology uh, rampaging forward. It's, a, it's great to see. Um, but what we need is smart grids that are able to predict 
uh, when the sun is going to shine 15 minutes before it actually shines. We need that data understood um, by uh, the grid systems and we need to turn on storage at the point at which we predict uh, we're a few minutes away from needing it. Even the way in which energy uh, is priced, the way the spot price works, uh, it, it's calculated every five minutes and settled every 30 minutes in the national electricity market, even that needs to be adjusted if you're going to get a grid that works for renewable energy. So when we have our opponents out there talking about intermittency and frequency issues, it kind of scares us off, right, because we don't understand those issues. But the reality is the technology exists to deal with what uh, you need to get above 40-50% renewables in the grid. We know how to do it, um, but we don't talk about it publicly, and I think in part that's because it's complex, and in part it's because not enough of us have taken the time uh, to try and shift the debate, the debate uh, in that okay, direction. Uh, the grid, you mentioned the grid, which is interesting because when I've interviewed uh, Professor Andrew Blakers, he's talked about the grid quite a lot, and he says quite emphatically the grid is part of the solution, as is pumped hydro and other forms of energy storage. Um, can we sort of break the grid down? Because to most of us, you know, you've got the PowerPoint on the wall, you stick your appliance into it, and that's about how the grid works. But it's it's a bit more than that. Can you...? Yeah, sure. Well, the, one of the most important things that uh, having to being connected to the grid and having all of us connected to the grid, or as, as many of us as possible can do, is it can allow for us to trade energy amongst each other. Um, one of the things we're going to see next year, I would say, well, sorry, this year, uh, I would say probably in the second quarter, is we're going to start to see energy retailers uh, using their technology uh, to buy back power from you at times at which someone else needs it. So in the last few weeks, we've seen power prices spiking absolutely out of control above $13,000 a megawatt hour in Queensland. And now that will be investigated because, you know, days where you're averaging power prices of $500 a megawatt hour, as we we did uh, over the last few weeks in Queensland are scary and uh, they don't make sense but partly they're occurring because we've not got a smart system if I've got an electric vehicle full of power uh, and I've got a battery full of power and both of those devices are connected to the grid well I should be able to program a device that says yes I'm happy to sell that at 50 or 60 cents a kilowatt hour at times of peak demand now that technology exists to do that right now and I'm, I'm almost certain we'll see some of the smaller retailers start to grab that technology and use it at utility scale level. You see, many people um, in the next year are going to have batteries in the home and they're going to feel really proud about that. But in and of themselves, they can't actually sell that excess energy very easily into the wholesale electricity market where prices are really set. To do that, you've got to have about one megawatt of power. So of course, we all come together, uh, we combine ourselves to that one megawatt and we sell together. That kind of thing is going to become a reality in the latter part of this year, just as we see the next uh, Tesla battery uh, come out uh, in uh, April or May of this year, assuming it's a few months late. So if I've got some panels on my roof and I'm not using all of the power, I'm selling it back into the grid and I think it's about 8 or 9 cents or yeah, something? Yeah, 10, 10 to 12 is the maximum really you're getting at the moment. People are getting as little as 6. That's going to be blown out of the water. And then I buy it back from the provider at what? 23 to 28 cents sometimes. It's, um, yeah, we don't want to be in that position. So that undermines the motivation for people to sell 
the excess electricity. Is that what you're saying? I think people have a high motivation to sell. They don't have the technology and the system set up to do so properly. We've got some great Canberra businesses like Reposit Power who are trying to help solve that, but the solution will involve both home solutions like that and energy retailers coming to the party and participating. Um, at the moment, uh, we've got a gold-plated grid, uh, which means that um, our transmission lines are highly funded. We have coal-fired power stations sitting there and gas-fired power stations sitting there ready to go when we need them. Well, what we really need to be doing is paying people to put batteries in the home uh, or setting targets to force retailers to have that because that's going to be a more uh, a competitive network in the future. We can see a f- I can see a future coming later this year where you get paid grid support payments, um, essentially leasing out your battery and its excess power to be used in emergency situations by the rest of the grid when power prices are spiking. Uh, I can see a great future with a small-scale... Um, we've got a small-scale renewable energy program but what about a solar storage program? What about forcing the retailers to actually have a percentage of battery or pump hydro storage available at all the time? Uh, that's the kind of thing that is going to drive the energy grid beyond the 40 and 50% state targets um, up to that 70, 80, 90% that we need so to get is to. Is this primarily a, to do with the economics of the grid rather than the, the technology on the grid? I mean, the grid itself simplistically is a bunch of wires and boxes is the grid itself this physical structure um, pretty much correct and is this is just the market changes is that what you're saying well the, but they both go together so the physical structures of the grid are very inefficient right we buy our energy from Newcastle or the snowy hydro uh, here in Canberra uh, and it travels a very long way um, to get to us now that's inefficient, right? We're losing sometimes up to 50% of the energy that's generated uh, by the time it gets to your home. So if we've got more solutions that are localised, then we've got a smarter, more secure grid and ultimately a more efficient grid. See, energy efficiency, which is going to be a big focus uh, of the Liberal Party this year, um, I'll uh, place that bet on the table now. Um, I think at the National Press Club, Malcolm Turnbull's making an address in some weeks that Canberrans should get along to. At that National Press Club address, he will announce a significant focus on vehicles, emissions and energy efficiency. And that's because this stuff is not very political, right? Like if we're wasting 50% of energy on the way through, surely what we should be doing is trying to maximise the benefits of how our grid can work with minimising how much energy we actually use in homes and businesses. So so are you saying that the grid pumps electricity much greater distances than it needs to? Exactly, exactly. We all rode our bicycles here today and before the sun goes down here on Fuzzy Logic, our guest today is Simon Cheek, activist and now running a company called Future Super. Now, we were talking before about solar energy projects and wind projects and how people can make a difference by their own personal actions. I think this is what Future Super is about. Am I right? Yeah, so Future Super is fundamentally about challenging the superannuation industry to stop investing in fossil fuels and start investing in climate solutions like the clean energy projects we've been talking about. Uh, Our theory is that we've got a more than $2 trillion sector that can be disrupted Uh, How can we disrupt it? Via our behaviour as consumers, right? By what we decide to do. Uh, Money uh, talks when it walks. And that's what we've certainly found out uh, in recent months and years at Future Super. We now manage just over $200 million. And uh, as you pointed out, some of that money is invested in renewable energy projects. In fact, uh, we're coming to you from Canberra today. And one of the projects we invest in is the Mount Majura solar farm uh, just near the airport and uh, the Williamsdale solar farm just south of, uh, of, a, of the ACT. So these 
these are great projects that are delivering benefits to people. Interestingly, uh, what we see with solar is once you develop it, of course, you've got fairly stable returns from that point of uh, from that point onwards. It's reasonably easy to predict within a certain range how much sun is going to shine. It's reasonably easy to predict how long a solar panel and inverter is going to last, how regularly you need to clean it to keep within your utilisation schedules and your generation schedules. So it, they make for good investments um, for many people. And we're now starting to see, of course, other superannuation funds and other investors start to wake up to this reality. Uh, let's talk a bit more about how the fund works. But first, I want to think about how you made this transition because it's sort of a curious thing. Now, you you, sure. you have a qualification in... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I come from a finance background um, and an economics background, um, accounting e- economics to be specific, uh, having worked in the New South Wales Treasury and having worked for the New South Wales Treasurer. Um, I certainly learnt a few things there, but we've got people involved in the fund with decades of experience in, uh, in managing superannuation and uh, other portfolios. So it's a team effort, as you might imagine. But for me personally, um, the concept of uh, future super came out of Tony Abbott, seeing Tony Abbott get elected and understanding the need to have different ways of driving the renewable energy revolution. Um, I'm really passionate about uh, the energy grid uh, and energy generation of the future being owned uh, by people, um, uh, not just by institutional investors. And so increasingly what we're working on is ways in which everyday folks can get together and uh, buy into the renewable energy grid uh, and the renewable energy systems of the future. I just want to backtrack to your earlier life for a moment because it is a curious thing, is it, that you were environmentally active and so on and that you decided to move into a career and uh, university education in uh, economics and finance. What, what was going on in your mind then? Oh, look, uh, I uh, came to economics fairly uh, well. I came to economics uh, when I was 17 years old. What had happened is I wasn't studying enough subjects uh, to get a uh, university entrance score, which I only a diversity of subjects. So I had enough units, but they had to have had to be from four subject areas rather than three. Uh, and so uh, I got a letter from the university admissions place uh, that said, "Look, you, you need to do something about this." And this was just you know a matter of months before the HSC and so uh, I picked up economics and I just found that it made sense to me very quickly. It was something that it's a way of seeing the world, of understanding the relationships between things Uh, and so for me I became very quickly passionate about using economics for good, particularly in the context of the early years of studying economics at university. Those early years are all about the perfect market and very quickly you start to see this as absolute rubbish. But to understand it is to give you the tools to understand the complexity of the real world, of those market failures, of the fact that it actually makes sense to invest in renewable energy and yet for many reasons it doesn't happen at the same rate at which it should. So these are the things that made me very passionate and um, I'm really glad that I was able to meet many other people who were and start a really successful fund. Um, We've had some great returns and our investors are very pleased. We've also had some of the strongest growth uh, of funds under management um, uh, each month um, over the last few years since we launched because people are getting behind the concept of taking their money out of fossil fuels. When we launched our fund uh, two and a half years ago, there wasn't a single superannuation fund open to the public that didn't invest in some form of fossil fuels. And we thought that was crazy. So of course we wanted to do something about it. Well, let's talk about how you do it because I have a self-managed fund and I went to my fund manager and I said, look, I'd like to have a talk about where the money in my fund is going. What 
sort of investments do we have? Am I investing in coal? Uh, gambling industry, I think, is one on your list, right? Yeah, we're certainly out of all of those industries yeah. and there's plenty left to invest in. Yeah, and uh, how do I know where my money is going? And he said, well, you don't have any direct investments in coal mining, you don't have any tobacco investments and so on. He said, but a lot of them are larger conglomerates and we have no idea where the money goes once you put your funds into that. How do you know? How do you know where? Sure. Well, there's a whole industry, a uh, small one, but uh, dedicated, and much of it here in Canberra, dedicated to analysing these major companies, these conglomerates, to understand them. Uh, for example, that allows us to understand that to invest in the owner of coals is means you're also investing in the owner of coal. Uh, coal's the supermarket and coal, the dirty fossil fuel, are owned by the same company. And so these are the kinds of things that our researchers and our analysts are following very closely. And what we've been doing now is allowing people with self-managed super funds to also have similar investment strategies. Um, we launched, um, uh, we were part of uh, launching a fund um, uh, earlier in the week. We're invested in that fund, uh, an exchange-traded fund that invests in 100 global sustainable companies around the world, um, helps people skip having to do all that research themselves and have someone else do it for them. Oh, so it seemed too difficult, so we ended up making no changes. So are you saying that... Uh I could pay somebody or somehow or other? Yeah, that's right. So there are now products that are starting to be launched uh, that trade on the stock market like any other stock that allow you to invest in sustainable companies only, a whole basket of them. But if I wanted a review of my superannuation investment portfolio to say, am I meeting the ethical standards that I would like, how would I do that? Well, there's an organisation called CARE, C-A-E-R. You might remember them uh, from their involvement in the ANU's decision to review their investments. Uh, they have a service which works with financial advisors to, uh, to help them understand uh, some of the ethical issues that are at play here. But I think increasingly people want, many people don't want that complexity you know, a self-managed super fund. It suits some and it doesn't suit others. And so we're starting to see people close their accounts and bring them across to Future Super. I imagine other funds are doing so as well. Of course, you mentioned it as well. You've got a financial advisor. It's important that people factor in their own personal um, frameworks and personal circumstances when making these decisions. My comments here to you today are, are of course, as the disclaimer goes, general in nature and uh, don't take into account your own personal situation. Uh, yes, we are, we are not a financial advice service here. On, not on the radio, no. On, on Fuzzy Logic, and obviously you'll use prudence, uh, your own prudence, to make your, your choices. So you, you set up this fund, and you said it's grown really nicely. Where to next? The most important thing for us uh, is to do two things. One, it's to keep growing very quickly because you've got to remember at the end of the day we're trying to challenge a $2 trillion sector. So to put pressure on those large uh, superannuation funds means we need to keep growing. But the second is to shift the focus away not just from being fossil fuel free in our investment strategy, but to shift the focus towards investing in climate solutions. Uh, we talked earlier about the solar farms that uh, we've invested so in. negatives and positives. Negatives right. and positives. It's right. about having a positive screening process, we call it, to make sure that our investment savings are actually helping people and the planet. And the renewable energy sector, we think, is a great sector to be supporting in the future. What we're doing at the moment is looking to build products that, uh, out, that sit outside of the superannuation system that help people put some of their savings into renewable energy as well. There's so many things to do to drive the transition towards 100% renewables and I'm really excited that our team and our members can be part of it. Well I, I should say dear listener that uh, Simon's face lights up as he as he says that 
did you find it difficult to get this started? Because I'm just as a person who's not involved in any way with the finance industry other than a, my fund, uh, I can't imagine about how sure. you go about setting up something like a super yeah. fund. It seems incredibly complicated. Well, there are a lot of regulations, and as there should be, right? Um, it's incredibly important that people's retirement savings are invested to drive their outcomes, their retirement outcomes. And so that's, that's the basis at which the system works, which means partnership is what it's all about, finding the right partners with lots of experience to help build a fund like this. I didn't personally build it on my own. I built it with people who had started superannuation funds before, many of them, um, different businesses over the years, different funds management businesses. And that's that's the thing about entrepreneurialism, is it? It's about finding people who otherwise aren't working together and bringing them together to form something powerful. Uh, okay, I like that. So you're using the energy of people who are skilled and motivated. Exactly. Uh, okay. Now tell me a bit more about some of the projects that you're investing in with Future Super. Sure. Well, uh, we've mentioned a couple of them locally, but one of the more interesting projects we're invested in via our partners at the Impact Investment Group is a solar farm out in Caratha at the airport there. And this solar farm has, uh, for the first time in Australia, uh, at this scale, uh, cloud tracking technology. So what that allows uh, it to do uh, is understand about 15 minutes beforehand how much solar they're likely to produce. That then allows them to tell that, to send that message to the grid and allows the grid to be smarter about the way in which it decides where to pull power from. Uh, that project was uh, not just something we've invested in, but something that's been supported by ARENA as well. And so you can start to see the interrelationships, how people coming together uh, in a superannuation fund work with science and scientists who are creating wonderful things, engineers who are rolling them out, and programs like ARENA that were created uh, as a result of the multi-party climate committee negotiations between the Greens and Labor. That's where ARENA and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation came from. Of course, they became part of those negotiations because of the pressure of certain NGOs like the Australian Conservation Foundation, who are particularly uh, involved and interested in, in those topics of how you invest in renewables. It's how we all work together from all different sectors, all different types of experience, all different academic backgrounds, all different passions, we come together and actually are able to form this ecosystem. It's really easy to look at the science and not have hope. But when you look at the people involved in driving this clean energy transition, it's impossible not to have hope. Uh, I, I like that. And uh, dear listener, Simon is also waving his hands as, he, as he's saying this. I, I like your optimism and, and your enthusiasm. And I think we can see a lot of forces all coming together to actually do something real. So we're both going to a Community Energy Congress down in Melbourne at the end of February. 900 people. They get, they get a good attendance there. And, and look, listeners should uh, all look it up. The Community Energy Congress, uh, part of the Coalition for Community Energy, just a fantastic event for people to come down to Melbourne and attend to actually see all the exciting things happening, not just in our country, but around the world. We're hosting an event uh, called uh, Reinvest on the evening of the 27th of February as part of the Congress, and that's where we will be revealing a very new and exciting way that we can all participate in the renewable energy revolution, but I can't say much more than that now. Oh, press, press release coming up. Yes, that's right. Oh, we, we look forward to that, and I'll be there, so I'll perhaps I'll grab some audio, and we shall play that on a future Fuzzy Logic. Now, um, there's also things like local investment. So we've had a lot of pushback from various communities on things like wind farms. Now, my friend uh, uh, lives near the Hepburn Wind Farm in Victoria, and that was actually funded by local investment. 
I think, and, and it's such a great model. I'm so passionate about the concept of community-owned energy, as you've probably picked up, and it, and it, and that's in many different forms. The form we've seen so far is things like Hepburn here in the ACT in Canberra. We've got SolarShare doing some fantastic work, uh, raising capital to invest in a local solar farm just across the road from one of the solar farms that we're invested in at Future Super. These are wonderful projects because they're about social license, right? If you've got a wind farm, who better to own that wind farm than the farmers in the neighbouring uh, area? And they make profit from it. And exactly. Yeah, I think we're. I sort of see a move away from the industrial scale model here. That the old style is the big ass coal-fired power station, which is you know the massive scale thing that sits there pumping out, and we all just go and buy from it. And this is this is a bit more internety, a bit more webby in a way that. Uh, a bit more social media. Yeah, that, that networked model, um, if you like. Uh, it is, and, 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 and of course that's what you get from microgrids, um, from local battery storage projects, from people buying solar and putting it on their roof. But there are also really great benefits to having scale in the system as well because it's when you build really large-scale solar projects that you see the price coming down. We're now seeing wind and solar projects at record low prices in Morocco and other and parts of Europe um, simply because of scale. When you go to a, a, a solar development company and say, I'd like to build a 2-megawatt solar farm, and then another person goes to them and says, I'd like to build a 90-megawatt solar farm, well, you know who's going to drive down the lower price. There are economies of scale, and so this, a smart energy grid of the future combines the benefits of scale with the benefits of having local energy generation and storage. Uh, well, here, here on Fuzzy Logic, we are uh, fully solar-powered and uh, love the enthusiasm, Simon. Are you optimistic? Look, I'm optimistic because... Um, the economics tells us to be optimistic and the people involved give us hope. But that's not blind optimism. I mean, there are, of course, really big challenges. Um, politics and politicians are still important to driving national agendas that allow investors to invest in the first place. Uh, people are still really critical to moving the rock, if you like, which is the concept of giving politicians space to actually take action. By going out there and, and maintaining the pressure uh, when it comes to climate change, we force our politicians to have to do something. When they when they feel like they have to do something, they're more likely to talk to scientists uh, and say, well, look, what can I do? They're more likely to talk to policy experts. So this is an ecosystem we work in. It's one thing to be hopeful. It's another thing to feel like your sense of hope comes from the fact that you are yourself part of the movement driving this action. So if anyone out there isn't involved, I really encourage you to make 2017 the year that you do get involved. There are so many things happening here in Canberra and around the country uh, that there's really no excuses anymore to not participating in so this huge transition. Just sit around the table saying, this is bad, this is bad, we're all screwed. Because if we do nothing, we definitely screwed. Well, that's right. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a spectrum, right? The faster we move, the better we off we are. Um, this isn't about just averting a climate crisis. It's about, it's about averting the worst of the climate crisis. Yes. Well, thank you, Simon Sheik. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. You can pick up this program on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX.podbean.com. And we have a companion newspaper column in the Canberra Times, which online in Fairfax. And today's is about cricket. Do you like cricket, Simon? I love cricket. I'm a huge fan of cricket. Uh, well, you read today's Fuzzy Logic because we're talking about the physics of what happens when you wallop a cricket ball.
There you go. It's quite fun. It spends about point, uh, one millisecond uh, on a or one millisecond on the face of the cricket bat, and it goes from roughly ninety kilometres an hour in one direction to hundred kilometres an hour in the opposite direction in that short time. Rod, I've got a quick idea for you: commentating the cricket with scientists, describing what's happening, describing oh, the physics the as it happens, and vectors and so on. It's a new podcast. I can hear it coming. <laughs> we 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 should do that now. I think I might uh, do the next column uh, on flies. Uh, why is it so hard to swat a fly? Well, I've had that thought before, i tell you what. Well, uh, interestingly enough, my friend who's the naturalist at the Australian Museum said it relates to energy. There you go. There you go. Uh, what, what a thought. And uh, plenty more coming up on that. In fact, you can send your questions to askfuzzy at zoho.com. If you want to get in touch with Future Super, they can do so via the net. Look you up. Exactly. Simple as uh, typing it into your search engine and you'll find us. <laughs> uh, we look forward to and a great pleasure to talk to you today, Simon Sheik. And Thanks very much for having me and, and good work on the show. It's wonderful to be part of it. Oh, we, we do it because we love it.